Good morning, church. You may be seated. This morning, for those of you who are new or visiting, we'll be continuing our study. We're officially on our 21st week moving through the book of Ephesians. We find ourselves at, a, at an interesting point in what God delivers us, delivers to us through the Apostle Paul in this letter. We've been told that the first half of Ephesians, with its six chapters, the first three are very focused on orienting us to the relationship that we have been given with Christ Jesus through God's gracious gift. We were far off. We are enemies of God. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins, and God, through Christ Jesus, the God-man, in flesh, in human form, surrendering his life for us, made it possible for us to have a restored, vertical relationship with God. As we move into the, the second half, we start to see the, the theology of all of this playing out in such a way that it, it gives us an understanding of how we ought to live, how we ought to walk. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the second half of the second half of Ephesians is very focused on these horizontal relationships. They're practical steps for the blood-bought believer to live in peace, unity, and harmony with other human beings. This is God's design being laid out for us in very practical ways. Is it easy? No. Is it eternally true? Yes. Is it God's word to us this morning? It is. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the fifth chapter of Ephesians. We'll reread from verse 15, where we were last week, through verse 24. Verse 15 of chapter 5 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as, Christ, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we come into your presence this morning and we put ourselves under the authority of your word. We recognize that it is inspired by you, that it is infallible and that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We just ask, Lord God, that this morning we would humbly listen and contemplate what it is that you have given us as gospel imperatives. May you help us to see the, the reality of who you are and the reality of who we are in light of Scripture. Pray that you would give me your, your grace and your ability to communicate this word to your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're picking up at kind of an unusual spot here. We're picking up at verse 21. 
you'll notice last week I stopped in what appears to be the middle of a sentence. And it turns out, to begin this morning, we're going to have to look at some other translations of Scripture. Usually I pick on the NASB crowd. And it turns out, as I was going through commentaries this week, Martin Lloyd-Jones and James Boyce both pointed out that NIV was the best translation to look at for this text. Don't get up and leave yet, okay? So the NIV, if you have one with you this morning, it'll actually be quite helpful. And one of the reasons that this is helpful is because in that translation, the page break or the paragraph break is inserted in a very strategic, and as James Boyce says, right way. So we understand that in its original translation, Scripture didn't have chapter numbers and verse numbers, and it didn't have these neat little breaks in the text. But the NIV rightfully divides at verse 21, the section that we see beginning in most of our Bibles at verse 22. So these actually belong together. And I'm going to get us started out with looking at verses 21 and 22 in the NIV. NIV says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, if we look at that, we see that submit to one another out of reverence for Christ stands alone as its own sentence. And this is really important as we begin to unravel what God's word has to say for us this morning. You see, in the original Greek, the idea here is submitting to one another. It's not just about the husbands and the wives, right? The uh, play on words, for those of you who caught the joke there, the title of this morning's message is A Word to the Wives. But I'd actually like you to start by crossing that out and write a word to the wise, okay? This was an intentional play on words. If we look at where we began last week's message, it says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So this morning is, is not just about wives and the relationship between husbands and wives. It's written to the entire church. It is written to the saints at Ephesus. It is guidance for how we would live wisely with one another, and as we, we move through this, it's, there's a few other observations that we should begin with. First of all, while the NIV divides this rightly in saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, the NASB and the ESV are cor- correct in translating this as an imperfect verb. What do we mean by an imperfect verb? It's an ING verb. It's continuing to go on. It is not a submit once and done. It is an ongoing lifestyle of submission. And if we back up a bit, we'll see that, that all of this long sentence that Paul has put together are a set of ongoing, imperfect verbs to tell us to keep living in this way. Rewinding, at verse 18 of chapter 5, Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled, an ongoing filling, with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, ongoing a lifestyle of to produce gospel harmony in the covenant community, which is the church. Now that said, it's important for us to understand that while the specific implications of what we're going to look at today help govern Christian households, The idea of submitting and living in peace encompasses all aspects of human relationships. Paul, as well as as Peter, lay out for us that there ought to be submission 
in all areas of our life, different spheres. You're making, taking notes. There's spheres in which we see submission being called for in society. That's number one. We see a call for submission and obedience to authority in the church. That's number two. And then ultimately, as the text will show us this week and next, there's submission and humble obedience in the household, number three. Just to to recap, we're going to start with the submission that we are called to live under the attitude that we're supposed to demonstrate as followers of Jesus Christ in regards to society. Brother Mark shared for us 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 25 this morning. And I'm going to invite you to go briefly to Romans chapter 13, where Paul says something similar to what Peter says. Romans chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear for the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." For he is God's servant for your good. But if if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to them whose are taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. This is what God says to his people with regards to our attitude towards authority. Now, he's qualifying this as those authorities that are always righteous, that are always just, those that are always living out God's perfect laws. No, the call there is submitting to governing authorities because God has placed them there. And this is an important place for us to start today because ultimately what God teaches us about submission is that he is sovereign and gives specific accountability. We know throughout scripture that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. If we look at the statue in Daniel's vision, we see that that God's word talked about different kingdoms, the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, and he brought all of them to a conclusion because it's God that has the ultimate word. But, but how do we live in this season? Making the most of today because the days are evil, and we live in submission to that authority that God has placed. Now, as Mark pointed out, there's, a, there's an asterisk he's on there, right? There's a fine print, Acts Chapter 5, verse 29, helps us understand that when we are instructed to disobey God's law with regards to preaching the gospel, we must obey God and not men. We see that they're going through, in verse 28 of of Acts, the Jewish leaders were, were saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So the little asterisk there is, we, we must preach God's authority. Would we be imprisoned for doing so? Might we be subject to unjust authorities in doing so? Perhaps. But we must obey God and not men. So those are just two examples, that First Peter chapter 2 and Romans chapter 13, of how submission should play itself out in society. Moving from there, the Bible also calls on believers in Jesus Christ to submit to authority in the context of church. If you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, there's a great section of of practical living guidance. Verse 7 of Hebrews 13, the preacher of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The, The leaders are to be remembered and to be imitated as they follow out the example provided through Christ Jesus. Skipping down just a few verses from there, we we find ourselves at verse 17, which says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What Scripture is laying out there is a pattern for submission to those that God has placed in authority. This is those who have been placed in that authority as under-shepherds of Jesus Christ have the responsibility to lead God's people in a way that makes the church more like Christ. That means that the submission to them is the buck stops with that leadership. Next week, we'll have the opportunity to welcome our brother Robert as one of the, the elders at Pacific Hope Church. As we do that, we'll, we'll solemnly and in celebration exchange a, a few different vows. There are elder vows that, that Robert will be asked to repeat and, and put out before all of you. That includes, first and foremost, that an elder is to submit himself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is an under-shepherd. This is what an under-shepherd does. And subsequent to that, the elder vow says, the elder will submit himself to the other elders, right? There is a plurality in this leadership. There's a a way in which God designed this to structure, to work. Subsequent to that, you as a congregation will be asked to respond to a covenant that that you have agreed to. Those who are members of Pacific Hope Church, and and by the way, the membership class, the next time we do a membership class will be in the, the fall, for those who are asking, sorry, in the winter, we'll be doing it winter this year, we'll have the opportunity to go through and look at in depth what our church believes from Scripture and at that time, if, if you find yourself in agreement with those things, to recite in front of your brothers and sisters this covenant. This covenant that says, we submit to the leadership that God describes in Scripture. Because those leaders have been given the responsibility by God as those who must give an account. That's what the structure is all about. One other example of, of submission in, in the church is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, which might mean those who are newer in the faith, not necessarily age, be subject to the elders. And the word there is 
presbyteros, an, an overseer or an under-shepherd. Submit to them. Clothe yourselves with all of you. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty right hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Before I move on, I just want to say most Sunday mornings, I pray for you all because I have recognized in my own life that the, the commute to church can be one of those times most rife with spiritual attack and conflict in the families, okay? There's just a, a natural thing where the enemy opposes us as we go to worship our king. This week, I'm going to pray for you on your way home, okay? Because these are tough topics. Submitting in the political arena, arena? I mean, that, that's conflict, right? Submitting in the church arena, ugh, that's hard too. And then we're going to get to submitting in the house, and this gets really tricky, okay? So the third arena where, where the Apostle Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, takes us to this pattern of biblical submission is in the household. Colossians chapter 3, verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. And then, of course, in the parallel passage, Paul says there, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. These are difficult mandates, brothers and sisters, but this is throughout Scripture. This is what we're called to dig into and understand together this morning. And so we ask for God's grace. We depend upon God's grace, do we not? But it's the topic specifically of marriage that brings us together today. So... Thank you for the Princess Bride fans out there. <clears throat> the, uh, the topic of, of, of marriage and household governance is where Scripture takes us this week. I'm going to read for you just an excerpt from James Boyce's excellent commentary as he digs into why marriage is the thrust of all of this. Boyce says, Marriage is the first human institution because, as the Bible shows, it was the first relationship between human beings that God created. In the first chapters of Genesis, we are shown how God created all things and how after he created them, he pronounced a blessing upon each, saying, it is good. It is only after he had created man, but before he had created woman, that God looked at creation and found fault with it. God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. As a result of this negative evaluation and an answer to man's aloneness, God created the first woman and brought her to the man thus performing the first marriage ceremony. Moreover, skipping ahead just a bit, Boyce says, marriage is the first institution in which all, all other institutions come from. The earliest education was done in the home, as mothers and fathers instructed their children to eat, walk, speak, and work, and do many other things. From this basic and natural responsibility have come all other formal centers for learning, schools, academies, colleges, universities, and other organizations. The earliest healthcare was developed in the home. Then came hospitals, clinics, and hospices. The home was the earliest center of human government. From a father's rightful rule in his home, there developed monarchical and later democratic forms of human rule. Two things follow from this. First, if marriage is allowed to decline as it is doing in our day, then these other institutions will inevitably decline with it. Secondly, whoever contributes to the decline of marriage sins against God. What an excellent summary of, of why we find ourselves looking at the pattern of biblical submission and the sanctity, the holiness of what God has instituted 
in marriage. As we, we move into this, we need to understand that this topic of submission does not come naturally to us. We are, in our nature, opposed to how God has laid all of this out. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We won't look at this text in, in all of its intricacies, but I'll tell you that in, in the city of Corinth, there was some conflict happening in the church. The conflict had to do with what does it look like when the body of believers gets together? And there was conversation about whether or not women should have something on their head. This is a little hard for us to track today, right? We don't do like the Plymouth Brethren or the Amish or the Mennonites and have little things on our head. But in Paul's day, and specifically in Corinth, there was a big deal about having something on their head for women. And the reason is explained in this. It was a symbol of authority, a symbol of headship. Looking at verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. He then goes on to say that men should not have things on their, on their head because they're the authority over their wife. Christ, of course, being the head of man. And then it goes on to say in verse 11, sorry, verse 10, that a woman should in fact have a covering on in the church of Corinth in that particular time and place to show that she was under the authority of her husband. And let's take a look at this argument together because this is interesting. It says, I'll start back at verse eight. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Because of the angels, what an interesting way to end an argument. It's like, not just because I said so, or not just because. Paul says, it's because of the angels. <laughs> okay, use that one in your afternoon conversation. Like, what would you like for lunch? I'd like that, and because of the angels. But there, there's actually a lot in this statement. There's, there's different un understandings of what's happening here, but we need to understand what we, what we saw last week, right? God interrupted and punctuated eternity, and inserted chronos. He inserted time. And in this time, he's laid out a plan, a redemptive drama that's going to unfold. He's going to create. He's going to allow creation to rebel against him and fall. And then he's going to allow the angels as cosmic onlookers to watch his grace and his mercy unfold. If we consider 1 Peter chapter 1, it says that there's things that even the angels long to look into. They want to understand, God, why did you create these people? <laughs> How could you possibly love these people? And the angels understood the natural desire in every being to rebel against God. The angels saw this first as they saw Satan fall from heaven. Isaiah chapter 14 is a remarkable text that has a, a unique double meaning. It's talking about the king of Babylon on one hand, and at the same time, it's a double meaning referring to Satan. And look at the, the explanation that we see as we consider what the angels saw, what the angels observed. Verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 14. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? This is referring to Satan the fallen angel. How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? 
You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. See, this is what the angels understood about this cosmic drama. This is what the angels understood that everything puts itself by nature in rebellion to God. That's why we find ourselves looking at the text. It says, wives, verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You see, things come off the rails right there. <laughs> we, none of us can submit to the Lord. None of us are capable in our nature of submitting to the Lord. We see that from the first moments of creation. In fact, to, to unfold the curse even further, Satan, as he's fallen, as he's tried to usurp God's throne, approaches Adam and Eve. He approaches them, and in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, you see that, that Satan sells the lie, and he says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Both disobeyed the one simple single commandment, do not eat from that tree. They usurped God's throne. They, they tried to take his place. And because of that, they, and through they, we are under a curse. The curse is, is seen in Genesis 3.16. God says, To the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bear forth, bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. So the Bible tells us pretty plainly why we don't like this thing, right? We try to take the place of the Lord. We try to make our own rules. And as a result, there's consequences. The woman is under the headship of her husband. And you know what it says? She won't like that. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That same exact verbiage is used in Genesis 4, chapter 7. This is referring to, to Cain and his brother Abel. God warned Cain in advance, you're going to be tempted. Look what he says. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You see that? It's contrary to what we want, and we have to rule over it. Women, wives, submitting to the husband comes as unnaturally to us as fleeing from sin. But as I said, this message isn't just a word to the wives. It's a word to the wise. If we're going to walk carefully, we need to understand that we are all under this curse. We are all under the curse where we want to dethrone God and we want to do things our way. But the good news of the gospel is proclaimed throughout the book of Ephesians, throughout scripture, in fact. But if we look at where we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter five, I want to tell you that God has given us everything that we need to live out a worthy calling. Last week was, was just a, a true blessing as we looked at Ephesians 5.18, a verse that said, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. See, this passage here that we find ourselves dealing with submission is sandwiched between be filled with the Holy Spirit and 
in chapter six? The full armor of God. There's two things we really need if we're gonna live out submissive, obedient lives to Christ. We need the Holy Spirit and we need the full armor of God. And as we looked at the, the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit, we learned that that meant to be propelled by the Holy Spirit. Like a wind in a sail. We're to be permeated by the Holy Spirit, like we've been marinated in it. It just permeates who we are. And ultimately, that we're supposed to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So as we understand this idea of, of biblical submission, we need to understand that we've been equipped with the Holy Spirit. We've been controlled by it. We've been propelled by it. And because of that, it's possible in God's grace, to live in obedience to that, to allow and, and yield to the fact that Christ is on the throne and that he's ordained a structure that while we might not like it, we will humbly and obediently submit ourselves to it. If you would, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. As we unpack this idea of wives submitting to their husbands, the apostle Peter says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. If you look at what's in that statement, there's a, a call to be submissive, and it's a call to be submissive to an unbelieving wife. There's much to be said about how the Holy Spirit is given to us as believers. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15 says, what did, the, what did God desire? He desired for marriage and for their marriage to be infused with the Holy Spirit, a portion of his spirit in their union. So for those of us who are in relationships where husband and wife are both filled with the Holy Spirit, are both directed by and under the control of the Holy Spirit, there should be a mutual submission. And as we look at this text, we also understand that in the church, in Paul and Peter's day, just as the church today, there are often couples where one is a believer and the other is not. And the Holy Spirit is, is sufficient to give us godly conduct. Peter's, Peter says there, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by conduct of their wives. You see, this is walking with a conduct worthy of the calling. Not with words, but with humble, gentle submission. This is still hard to follow, right? This is still hard to swallow. But wait, it gets harder. Let's keep reading from there in 1 Peter chapter 3. Continuing at verse 3, it says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. See that? A submissive spirit, a humble spirit, is precious to God. It's not just a, a convincing thing to an unbelieving husband. It's not just a way to silence the foolish talk of the world around us, but it's also pleasing to God. And then he goes on to say from there, for this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Wow. 
Peter takes us back to the Old Testament. He says, if you want to understand what, out, what beauty looks like, what inward beauty looks like, don't think about all these jewelry things. Prettying yourself up with, with makeup or with things that are gold and are silver and they're corruptible or stealable, right? But inward beauty that is submission to God. And submission to God by submission to the husband. And she uses Abraham as an example, which I find interesting. First of all, let's think of, of what Abraham was doing when God called him in the first place, right? He lived in Ur. Such a fun place to be from, right? Where are you from? Ur. He's in Ur, and God calls him. And everyone around him in Ur is a, is a polytheist. There's a lot of different gods, but God, in his grace, reaches out to Abraham and says, Abraham, I need you to follow me. You know what Abraham says to Sarah? hey, you know what? We need to follow God. And she did. She followed God. And she followed Abraham. She followed her husband. And they went down to Egypt. And the first thing I'll tell you there is that, that Abraham did take that step in leading his family in, in, the, in the right generation. But then like a complete knucklehead, he gets down to Egypt and he says, oof, Sarah, you're looking good these days. Um, there's a lot of Egyptians around and I'm kind of afraid they'll kill me and take you. So if you could just go ahead and tell everybody that you're my sister. That's what God wants is for us to submit to our husband when he comes up with a really bad idea, <laughs> right? But all throughout this, what we understand is that we're marred by the fall. We're marred by sin. Abraham wasn't a perfect example, but he did lead his wife in the right direction following after God. And then we also know that Abraham and Sarah went for many years without being able to have children, then the angel shows up and tells Sarah, you're going to have a child. You know what she did? She laughed. And Abraham said, what are you laughing about? And he, he called her back to having faith rightfully placed in the Lord God. So we see that Abraham didn't do it perfectly, but he did do it in a way that God ordained. And posterity and, and Peter and scripture call out the fact that Sarah obeyed him. And she called him Lord. How's that for a lunchtime conversation that could get really ugly, right? This idea of, of Lord, the one that is the one who is giving leadership in that relationship. That's a difficult thing. But to rightly understand the text that we're in, we need to remember what we've seen in the previous 20 weeks of the book of Ephesians. That is, this letter isn't just about our relationships. It's not just about practical living. It's about giving us a right understanding of God and who he is. I found it remarkable as we preached through James together last year that the name of Jesus Christ was really only mentioned twice, right? But Ephesians isn't like that. Ephesians is full of Trinitarian theology. So I'm just to take a quick break there and ask you to go back to Ephesians chapter one and we're gonna reread this incredible doxology. Starting at, at verse 3, be reminded yet again of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ as we read this. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." You see, this is Trinitarian theology here. This is the Trinity being explained to us. We see, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord. And then we see that we've been given the promised Holy Spirit, the three in one, the Trinity. Another commentary I read was uh, an essay written by a pastor who'd, who'd led for 65 years. For 65 years, he'd been a part of, of preaching and as he concluded his pastoral career, he's like, you know, I can count on one hand how many times I preached the Trinity. He's like, if I could do anything else, I would go back and marvel at the fact that the Godhead is shown as three in one. We're going to unpack this a little bit together, but first I want us to, to focus on that word Lord for just a minute. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 5 with me, Verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Savior. Okay? So I learned something else this week, digging into Greek. The word for savior is soter, where we get the word soteriology, our salvation. But you know what's fascinating is that that word soter is the same word that the Greeks would have used in that day to refer to the emperor. The same emperor that we're called to submit to, the same emperor that God has placed there, but the same word to describe Christ as savior describes the emperor. But let's think about this for a minute. Paul and Peter wrote during a time called the, the, the Pax Romana, right? This is a period of Roman peace. If you think about how the Roman Empire worked, they would, they would go with their ambassadors and they would bring terms of surrender. And those terms of surrender were terms that if you accepted them unilaterally and unconditionally, you would be given a certain type of peace, right? They would, they would come and they would make you a subject of the Roman emperor. If you did those things that the emperor asked of you, like pay taxes, you'd be under his protection. You would live at peace. He would be referred to as Soter or Savior. But what a broken and sinful system. Do you guys know that when Peter wrote these words, the emperor was Nero? A guy that lit Christians on fire as torches to illuminate the streets of Rome? Like this is not an emperor that you would probably want to use describing using the same word as Christ. But if you unpack this just a little bit, what a remarkable thing that Paul is telling us about Jesus Christ. You see, he comes to us as a different kind of savior. He's a savior that comes to us, and yes, he brings us terms of surrender. What are his terms of surrender? Repent and be saved. Leave your sin behind. Come to me. 
be saved. But then does he offer us a, a tenuous artificial peace like the Roman Empire? No, no. And does he demand taxes with us so that we can sort of live comfortably, right? We see that in submission sometimes. If you do things exactly the way I want you to, we'll be good. We'll have peace. In, in a marriage, hey, as long as you go along with what I say, we'll have harmony, right? It's not that kind of a fake harmony. It's not that kind of a fake peace because Jesus is not that kind of a fake savior. As we'll delve into next week, the type of savior that Jesus is is the type of savior that laid down his life for us. He gives us his protection. He gives us his salvation, but at the cost of what? His own blood. And so for that reason, Paul rightfully says, this Christ, he's the savior of the church. When you submit to him, it's not like submitting to one who is going to abuse that authority. It's one that loves you so much that he's given his life for you. Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. And that's how we ought to submit to him. But as we get into this, this Trinitarian idea just a little bit more, have to understand that the Godhead demonstrates for us what this gospel submission looks like. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may have heard the term, the, the hypostatic union, right? Hypo is the same word that we see here when we talk about hypotaxis. Submission, the word hypo means under, okay? So hypodermic, the needle goes under the skin, okay? The hypostatic, under the oneness of Christ, fully God, and fully man at the same time. Likewise, this idea of, of hypotaxis is under the authority of, under the submission. And you'll notice that as Paul unpacks all of this, he never tells us that we're supposed to be over men, that we're supposed to be over our wives. He doesn't tell us that we're supposed to be over. He tells wives they're supposed to be under. There's always the word under in this because it's a perfect example of gospel humility. As we look at the, the idea here, R.C. Sproul helps us understand the some of the really tough concepts of the Trinity in a very practical way. You see, the idea of submission is, is clear in what we see with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Their essence is co-equal, but the submission is evident. I'll read this quote for you. It says, both apostles, particularly Paul, root the principle of submission not to first century culture, but to creation. In creation, God made Adam to be the head over Eve. Yet this is where the issue gets murky. Some men say that since marital submission is creation ordinance and not a cultural custom, it must therefore mean that wives are inferior. That is wrong. We are joint heirs of Christ. Christ created us male and female. The position of headship or leadership is a division of labor, and in a division of labor, being subordinate does not imply inferiority. An article central to the Christian faith is the co-dignity and co-eternality of all members of the Godhead. So the Son has the same essence as the Father. Nowhere in Scripture is the Son of God called inferior to the Father. Yet in the economy of redemption, the Father sends the Son. The Son does not send the Father. In the economy of redemption, Christ is subordinate to the Father, but nowhere does that imply that he is inferior. 
And he goes on to explain the fact that Christ, in humility, being co-equal, co-eternal, co-creator, co-everything with God the Father, submits to him. And yet, as we apply this to our, our marriages, there's a number of things that we ought to understand. First of all, that Christ's submission was not without dialogue. Right? If, if you look at that, Paul, we, we see that in the garden, as Peter's sleeping, as the disciples are sleeping, Jesus has his interaction with God the Father. If it's possible, Lord, could you take this cup from me? Yet not my will, but yours. He submitted himself to that will. He approached the Father, and, and he dialogued with him. But ultimately, he demonstrated for us that gospel humility. Moreover, Christ demonstrates for us that which he asks us to do. He does everything that, that the law calls for us to do, but he does it perfectly and without sin. In Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8, a, a preaching text, the one that we come to so often, we see the humility of God the Son submitting to God the Father. It says, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in human form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to, to the glory of God the Father. So we see this submission in the pattern of the Trinity. We see that throughout the, the book of Ephesians, we're given what we need to live out in gospel obedience. We're given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're given a clear example of Christ as our Savior and our Lord. And we see Christ submitting himself to God the Father. And with that, we, we can look at verse 24 and 25 of Ephesians 5, and it, and it starts to make a little bit of sense. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is where we're going to be going next week. We're going to see that, that while this concept of, of submission seems difficult, the concept of agape love is no easier. It's Christ laying down his life for his bride. Laying down his life. And because he's done that for us, submitting to him through the power of the Holy Spirit becomes something that we are able to do. To get practical for just a minute, as we wrap up, this idea of, of submitting a woman to a man seems so very countercultural, but it's clear in the gospel picture. We are fallen people, so this isn't going to be easy. Wives, your husbands are going to let you down. Husbands, your, your wives may be un, unsubmissive from time to time, but guess what? How does Christ respond to you? Be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Without unpacking all the, the nuances of what the submission is like, just understand that the call is there. He has equipped us through his Holy Spirit to live it out. We're not going to do it perfectly, but do it with Christ 
plainly in view. Never lose sight of Christ as we live out these relationships, submitting one to another for the glory of God. Remember what we read in that doxology? Ultimately, it's all about the praise of his glorious grace. Lives lived in submission to one another, lives lived in submission to Jesus Christ, point to his glory and to his grace. If you're in a position where right now there's, there's pain and hardship and hurt because some aspects of a, of a relationship aren't working out, turn to Christ, recognize that you have the opportunity to come to him and to repent. He offers us terms of surrender. He offers us the opportunity to have a real and enduring peace with him through Jesus Christ. My prayer is that as we live this out of the church, we're going to do it imperfectly. We're going to disappoint each other. We're going to hurt each other. Be quick to forgive. Be kind and tenderhearted as Christ has forgiven us. Let's pray and ask God to help us apply all that we see in these short verses. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is unchanging. We thank you that even in all of its difficulty, Lord God, you give us the Holy Spirit to help us apply it, to help us understand it, and to help us live it out for the praise of your glorious grace. God, we ask that as a body of believers that we would be submitted to you, giving preference to one another, and that we would live an obedience life that shows that we're walking as wise and not as unwise. Might you be glorified through us and might you forgive us for any ways where, where we've tarnished your name, where we've fallen short of that which we have been called to. Through your Holy Spirit, Lord God, I pray that you would ask each of us as followers of your son Jesus to live out gospel submission this week. In Jesus' precious name, amen.